All right, welcome to another podcast of Let's Talk UNLV. You with co-host Keith and Renee. Renee, how was your weekend? So I had a great weekend. I went to Memphis, Tennessee to celebrate uh, one of my good friends who became the 13th president of Lamoan Owen College in Memphis, Tennessee as an HBCU. And uh, we had the gala, we had the luncheon, uh, we also had the inservitude. The inservitude. Uh, it was just a, a stellar occasion. Um, and I also got a go chance to, to Bill Street and get me some, some, some good barbecue at BB King's. Uh, so uh, just an all around a great weekend. What about you? Fancy, smancy. I know, I know. <clears throat> well, it's, that's, that's a departure from your Daredevil weekend. So. <laughs> so now I have to ask, you're from the Midwest. Or were you? You've lived in the Midwest yes, quite a bit, so yes. I know you've had a lot of barbecue different places. So how yes. does the, you know, Memphis is one of those cities that, you know, they put a stake in the sand in terms of barbecue. So so what's your assessment of the quality of their barbecue compared to other? Uh, you know, it was it was OK. I, I wasn't wowed, but I have to say, I would say the best barbecue I've ever had. I have to venture from the Midwest. It was in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, Texas. They they got get some good barbecue. What, what, so Texas, what, what, what did you have? Uh, brisket. I also had uh, some uh, uh, some rib tips, and uh, I probably should not be asking it right before lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should but not no, be asking it. But uh, no, Texas uh, was yeah some some good meat. What about you? Well, speaking of barbecue, my weekend we had our African American graduation celebration oh. and student achievement. So yeah. it was a Congrats. phenomenal event. You know, it was great just having. <clears throat> The families back on campus and just mm-hmm. being able to recognize mm-hmm. the outstanding student achievements and the graduation event of our students. So that was <clears throat> phenomenal. And the first time in what two or three years, right? Yes, that you've since been able to hold that in person. Nineteen was the last in wow. person mm. in person that we did. So we got just a lot of positive feedback. You know, just always great, you know, seeing people in person, especially mm-hmm. people who you not seen in a year, year and a half, you know, in that setting. And just interacting with the parents and the families of the students and just seeing the joy on the students' faces, you know, was just, you know, indescribable. And then lastly, speaking of barbecue transitioning, right, we actually had John Muse, one of the the local uh, barbecue pit masters here in Vegas. So they catered the event. So, you know, I have my annual exam coming up. Okay. So I probably should not have eaten as much beef as I did over the weekend, you know, so I ate lots of brisket, lots of brisket, lots of mac and cheese, which are things. You might I have probably, to go back for your lab work. You might I may have, have to, to postpone the lab work, right? But but we'll, we'll see what my physician uh, recommends after I confess. My I had been doing good with chicken and turkey for the last month. So. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I am glad to have our guest on today. We have Norma Maroon, Dr. Norma Maroon, Maroon, and then we also have Dr. Christine Clark here. Uh, Norm is a, an assistant professor with the CME program, which is the Cultural Studies, Intentional Education, and Multicultural Education program. And then also uh, Dr. Christine Clark is with the department in the Department of Teaching and Learning. She's a professor there. So uh, Dr. Maroon and Dr. Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. And also just uh, congratulations to Dr. Maroon on just receiving tenure and being promoted to associate professor starting July 1. Oh, congratulations. 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 What a milestone. And then what we'll do, we'll start off just maybe asking each of you to just share a little bit about your journey into your current role at UNLV. And we'll start with uh, Dr. Maroon. 
All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, whew, my journey. Um, I would like to start with my journey started in hmm, El Paso, Texas, and Juarez, the border. Um, I think I was seven years old when my mother and I um, immigrated to this country. We were undocumented, and we had nothing with us, just a dream, right? And that dream was to obtain an education. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know what it was going to take to get there, but the support and love of my family and my community um, just continued to nourish me and inspire me. And so I just knew that education was um, what I always wanted to pursue. So uh, long story short, I ended up at San Jose State for my bachelor's degree and University of Utah for my master's. PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and then went on to postdoc at Duke University, and when I was on the job market, I really wanted to work in a place where I could connect with students, uh, with students of color, for, with first-generation students, and I found the perfect place, UNLV. It's been, uh, it's been a dream come true to teach at UNLV, but to also be back in my ancestral land, Aslan. Dr. Clark? Sure. Um, I was born in Detroit, and I grew up in Cleveland. I'm from a white, middle-class family. Um, I think that my parents also, like Nonma, uh, my parents uh, inspired me to pursue education. And um, I, I think I'm sort of an accidental teacher. Um, I didn't necessarily see myself becoming a teacher, but um, one of the mentors that I had, Dr. George Smith, um, really inspired me to get some full-time teaching experience um, because he felt that it limited him and his career that he couldn't have it, and I sort of fell in love with it. And that um, started my, traje- my trajectory in higher education. Um, prior to that, I had worked in community-based um, mental health primarily, and some community-based education, and been um, an an activist around educational and diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice issues. And um, I think I just found, I found through teaching in uh, in higher education, I found a way to live my commitment um, to um, equity and justice. And um, I did that through sort of uh, both campus-wide equity and diversity roles and then also teaching in multicultural education in um, teacher education roles. And so I've always had like sort of one foot in both both roles and I'm sort of a typical academic nomad. I started my higher ed career at a community college in Worcester, Massachusetts called Quinn Sigamon. And there I worked with um, faculty primarily on multicultural curriculum transformation. And then I went to New Mexico State as faculty and teacher prep focused on multicultural education. Um, and then from there, I went to the University of Cincinnati and coordinated an urban ed, um, uh, educational leadership program. Um, and from there to the University of Maryland in what we would call today uh, like a Chief Diversity Officer position, but I also had um, appointments um, in um, academic departments, and so ran an academic program through that office. And then that landed me at UNLV for very similar reasons to Nonma. I saw an opportunity to be able to do um, both the multicultural teacher education work and campus-wide equity and diversity work at an institution that was 
um, on the rise in a lot of different ways. And I was also attracted to the student population, first-generation students that were highly and complexly diverse, and uh, an opportunity to, again, continue to live my commitment to equity and justice um, in higher education. So talk to us about multicultural education. What does that mean? And specifically, how is multicultural education rooted in the College of Education at UNLV? Sure, I can talk a little bit about how so uh, multicultural education was established as a content area in the College of Education in the Department of what was called Curriculum and Instruction and is now teaching and learning um, probably about 25 years ago by Dr. Porter L. Troutman, who was, um, I believe, the second and second longest serving African-American professor and the second African-American professor at UNLV to achieve tenure and full professor. Um, He started a multicultural master's program that when I transitioned from the administration at UNLV back to the department, I ended up um, inheriting that program when he retired. And um, that's the program that Dr. Maroon and I coordinate, co-coordinate, and that we've grown into... um, not just uh, two master's programs, two doctoral programs, an MS to PhD, and then uh, two graduate certificate programs, and then also uh, a concurrent PhD and JD program that all focus on critical multicultural education. Um, multicultural education as a discipline grew out of African-American studies, which a lot of people don't know. Um, its roots are in ethnic studies. Um, it has... Um, unfortunately, in some ways, been been pulled out of its roots in ways that sort of de-emphasize its commitment to um, improve educational outcomes for students of color by addressing um, systemic racism in K-12 and higher education. And so I think a lot of the work that we do is to now criticalize it and reconnect it to its ethnic studies roots so it can do the work that it was established by Many of the people who we read and or even were trained by the people who founded the discipline and have been the champions of it for many, many, many years. Yeah, and I'll just add um, that, you know, we owe a lot of um, the work of multicultural education just to add to black educators, in particular, the work of Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Um, He helped establish Black History Month. Um, you know, of course, he wanted it to be all year round, not just one month, but really it's the work of black educators in this country that have pushed for multicultural education, and that work is never, um, not like my colleague was mentioning, it's never acknowledged that it's the, the labor of black educators who um, to uh, challenge our Eurocentric and male-centric curriculum that is still prevalent in our K-12 and higher ed schools. And so how many students are in your program, and uh, what are some of the topics that you cover throughout the course of a year? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I think we have currently about 30 doctoral students um, and maybe 15 master's students that we are solely or primarily responsible for in our programs right now. Um, it doesn't sound like a lot on the master's side, but it's a it's a very large number on the faculty on the doctoral student side. Um, we teach. Um, we have I think probably somewhere around uh, 
15 or 16 courses that we offer through our program. They're not all courses that we teach because we're fortunate to have other um, colleagues that have joined us um, as affiliates to our program. So we teach uh, courses in multicultural education, international and comparative studies and education, um, critical race theory and education, critical whiteness studies in education, social justice education, um, cultural studies and education, uh, multicultural curriculum transformation, multicultural organizational development, um, intersectional analysis and multicultural ed, the analysis of the school to prison pipeline, restorative justice practices in schools and communities. And that course was designed and is being taught by Dr. Tanya Walls, who's um, also the founding um, the founder of Code Switch, a program that's community-based that focuses on restorative justice for girls of color. Um, and then um, we also have a course on teaching about the Latina, Latino experiences in education, critical multicultural education, theory and research in multicultural ed, and then intergroup dialogue facilitation. Wow. Uh, so we're joined by one of our uh, fabulous student leaders, uh, Karen John Charles. She serves on the Minority um, Serving Institution Student Council and works with the intersection. And she's also um, helping out this summer as an intern to keep the Minority Serving Institution Student Council afloat and to provide continuity for fall programming. And so uh, she's really, really interested in this topic and wanted to maybe pose a question to the two of you. Karen? Oh, yeah. My question was, um, how do you believe... Um, COVID and the pandemic has impacted marginalized and minority students? It's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, it's not actually something that we've studied, but it is something that, based on the experiences of our students, some of whom are CCSD teachers, um, we feel like we can maybe provide some insights on based on, based on that. Mm -hmm. Norma, you want to go ahead? Yeah, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that the transition from schooling into the home, right, so students were uh, well, close to a year and a half to two years um, doing, you know, schooling at home, and when they transitioned into, back into the school setting, it was pretty much abrupt, and there was no outlet for students and teachers to process their emotions and feelings, right, so, mm -hmm. you know, um, we were going through a global pandemic and um, students and teachers, right, were trying to make sense of it. And, um, you know, especially in the school district with a high percentage of students of color. And again, if we look at federal, state and local data, that data shows that people of color experience a disproportionate burden of COVID infections and deaths, right? Mm -hmm. So again, there was no outlet. There was no space created for students to process those emotions, those thoughts, to grieve. Um, there was also no space to reconnect with their peers, right? They were um, growing up um, connected virtually. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of a sudden, they were placed back in the classroom. Um, and it's almost like they were strangers, right? Because they didn't know uh, what they had experienced. And it was you know, back to the back to the lessons, back to the standardized testing, right? And again, not taking the time or creating a space for both students and educators to process those um, emotions and feelings. Mm -hmm. And then I know that you know, specific to Southern Nevada, 
Clark County, we know there are a lot of challenges in the K-12 system. Could you talk a little bit about, from your perspective and your expertise, how you are supporting some of the challenges faced by Clark County to maybe attract teachers, have more diverse teachers, maybe retention, having teachers who come, having students that come to your program, they go into teaching to be better prepared to address some of these challenges that, that they face in the classrooms. These. Sure. Um, we've had a, a few grant projects that have focused on, um, you know, the benefits of diversifying the teacher profession. And so um, I think we wanted to start with a few of the stats that sort of support why it's important to diversify the teaching profession and then go from there. Yeah, so um, I think first just acknowledging, like, why do we even need a diverse teaching workforce, right? Um, like, what are those what are those benefits? And so some of the, the literature has um, outlined several benefits, but I just want to um, discuss three of them. Uh, one, uh, teachers of color serve as important role models for students of color as well as their white students, right? So when students... Um, uh, especially students of color see another teacher of color, they're more likely to pursue teaching or just to pursue other careers. Second, okay, uh, diverse teachers are more likely to understand the experiences of students of color because they have had similar experiences. Um, you know, they, especially if they, um, if you have a teacher workforce that actually graduated from CCSC, right, they understand those challenges where someone like myself didn't go to school here um, might not fully understand those, but I do understand the experiences of what it means to be placed um, as an emergent bilingual, uh, what it means to grow up undocumented, to grow up in a mixed status household, um, to uh, live in a low-income household. So I understand those challenges, but also not just the challenges, but the strengths that I also bring with me into school. So a teacher of color can recognize those assets, those strengths that I bring into the school setting. Um, and then third, diverse teachers tend to also hold high academic expectations for students of color, as well as white working class students. And I think the most powerful um, example, right, is... Um, it's when um, we saw that when uh, we had a, a, a highly successful black teacher workforce, right, they weren't just preparing their students for, you know, just a job. No, they were preparing their students to become doctors and scientists. And so um, there's a long history, right, that demonstrates that having a diverse teacher workforce um, is, is highly critical, and um, especially um, uh, given our current um, uh, student demographics. Dr. Maroon, I'm so glad you said that because I serve as the advisor for the Minority Service Institution Student Council. And I know, Karen, they're like, Dr. Watson, why are you so hard on us? Dr. Watson, why we can't get more extensions? Dr. Watson, why you got to be, you know, like tracking the, the, the programming money? And why are you asking for smart goals? Well, see, Karen, you see? The expectations are higher. We get to set okay. the standard. That's you right. heard it. It's research, peer reviewed. Yeah, I've been corrected. <laughs> I like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm role modeling. I'm role modeling. Okay. That's right. All right. I hear you. Uh, but but thank you so much. And Dr. Clark, thank you for giving us the extensive 
uh, a list of courses that are um, uh, taught at uh, UNLV, but you mainly highlighted uh, courses that are taught at the master's level and doctoral level. And oftentimes we hear from our undergraduate students, you know, when are these kinds of robust course offerings going to be offered for, you know, students so they understand the experiences of uh, students of color, especially at a minority serving institution. Can you talk about maybe um, the need to have uh, that kind of pedagogy to be uh, given to even our undergraduate students? What a great question. Thank you for that. Um, So we could not agree more, and some of the work that we've done um, is is, is, um, is designed to sort of amplify the opportunities for students at the undergraduate level to have these experiences. Um, first, I should mention that undergrads can apply for a waiver to take graduate courses, but that's not a solution. That's mm-hmm. just an interim um, kind of like a, a like a stepping stone, but that's not a solution. Um, I do want to highlight the fact that um, we partner quite a bit with the Interdisciplinary Gender and Ethnic Studies um, Department, and that through the Ethnic Studies courses in that department and Women's Studies courses that a lot of the content area that we teach at the master's and doc level is also taught there, which is why a number of their undergrad students become our master's students and why lots of our doctoral students become part-time instructors over there for them. And I, I just want to highlight the, just going back to what we said about the history of multicultural education, that ethnic studies is really critical, um, not just to the, uh, like, sort of the neoliberal or sort of like the you know, the grades or job success or earning potential success of students of color, but also to their um, mental and emotional well-being, to their sense of connection to an intellectual tradition that goes back thousands of years in many cases, um, and to an understanding of, of who they are and where they come from, and to bring that understanding, you know, to the current day, to, to be able to sit strong in who they are and where they came from and the contributions that their groups um, have made to everything that we take for granted in our society today and often falsely attribute um, to, to white people or people of European ancestry. And so um, with that sort of as a backdrop, some of the things that we're working on, um, we do have EDU 280, which is an undergraduate multicultural ed course, but we're also hoping to work um, this semester with IGES to develop um, like a certificate that might be a half undergrad, half grad certificate that would focus on recruiting um, students of color into teaching by creating an ethnic studies endorsement. Um, we believe that ethnic studies should be pulled out of social studies um, as an endorsement because learning to teach social studies is not enough to be able to teach ethnic studies. And we believe that if we created an ethnic studies endorsement at the state level, that this will inspire more students of color to go into teaching. So we're thinking about starting with a course that would just focus on the importance of ethnic studies in teacher prep um, and then building from there um, into a certificate program and then go from there. I mean, ideally, it would be great. And it's also a thing at other colleges where um, some universities now have ethnic studies embedded in teacher education. Um, And I think that through uh, interdisciplinary partnerships with the College of Liberal Arts and the College of Education and our department and IGES, we can get to something like that. And that would really, um, I think we believe, be transformative. And so I would also ask a follow-up question. Um, since you've already said there are some limitations right now with the current setup, are there ways that uh, student affairs, since both Keith and I are in that uh, line of work, that we can 
provide opportunities until a more robust uh, program is in place to, you know, to, uh, I guess, lessen the gap and create more opportunities for ethnic studies to, to, to be centered um, in the undergraduate student experience. I, I would just say that um, there's um, there's um, uh, Asian American Asian and Asian American studies, um, Black and diaspora studies, and like Latinx studies. Um, those program areas offer a lot of courses for undergrads. Um, there's um, uh, introduction to the Asian American studies course, um, and so those courses I feel like they're not they're there. Um, but I think the, um, specifically IGS and ethnic studies, I feel like they probably, they need more support, more resources in order to provide more, um, recruitment or just getting students, um, informed and interested in the courses that they do have to offer. So I think, uh, our colleagues in IGS are doing an amazing work and I think that work is oftentimes undervalued. 100% agree, and I think um, if it didn't come through in my earlier response, I think that one of the things that we can all do is to work with the institution to um, identify more resources to support the growth, the further growth and development of IGES, especially ethnic studies and women's studies. And then in this work that you've you've been doing since you've been with um, the CME program, what are you most proud of? That's a tough question. Um, I guess for me, um, I'm most proud of the fact that we've been able to grow the program, including by hiring people like Dr. Norma Marun um, to uh, join the faculty. For a long time, it was, you know, just a faculty of one with Dr. Troutman and then with me. And so now uh, for the last, since 2016, there's been two of us, and we just um, are hiring two new colleagues, Dr. Daniel Mideres, and Dr. Marla Goins, and so we're excited about being able to diversify our faculty and just to have more faculty to support our students. So I feel like that's a huge accomplishment just because it's very difficult to get lines um, in higher education. It's also usually difficult to get lines to support program areas like ours and ethnic studies. And so that feels like a huge accomplishment, and we really um, appreciate Dean Hayes in the College of Education um, and um, our provost, uh, uh, Dr. Heavey, um, and the president, Dr. Whitfield, for providing funding um, for us in those regards. So I think, to me, that feels like our biggest success um, as a program. Uh, Norma, and, I don't know if you want to add. Well, what I would maybe pivot and ask Norma, if you could maybe share what are some of the current challenges or what are the highest priority next steps or to-dos for the CME program? One thing that I'm really excited for one of our colleagues is um, she has the knowledge and expertise to create a course on sort of teaching the experiences of African Americans in education. And so I think um, for me, like, I just want to continue to build critical courses that are grounded in the experiences of our students but are, that are also critical in understanding the current sociopolitical moment that we're currently facing, right? Um, and so, you know, for example, like, you know, the banning of CRT, I, I created and teach the only 
course, I think the law school also teaches a course on critical race theory, but mine is focused on critical race theory and education. And so, you know, bringing these courses is really exciting, but it's also, um, as a person of color, as a woman of color in academia, that sort of makes you a target as well. So it's, you know, it's exciting work, but it's also a bit scary, especially the last couple of days, um, how communities of color have been um, victims of um, domestic terrorism. Um, I think it's, it's great that we're doing this work, but at what cost, right? So that's sort of where I'm at. Dr. Clark, we'll give you the last word of the podcast. And is there anything that you would have wished we asked that we didn't ask or anything that you would like to share with the listeners about this topic? Uh, well, I think uh, we would just want uh, folks to know that we are we welcome folks with open arms. Um, we are always excited to welcome more students um, into our academic community. And um, we learn with and from our students in order to get better and um, in order to become, you know, um, uh, more critical scholars, to be able to situate their experiences in the work that we do in more meaningful and effective ways to ensure um, their educational success moving forward um, and to continuing to build uh, campus-based collaborations like the one we have with the Center for Academic Enrichment and Outreach and with um, the Clark County School District. It's really true that teamwork makes the dream work and that we're in this together. And so um, we just look forward to the opportunity to continue to grow and thrive and to serve students. For more Let's Talk UNLV, be sure to follow us on social media where you can get the latest updates on the show plus great behind-the-scenes content. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk UNLV Podcast, Twitter at Let's Talk UNLV, and Instagram at Let's Talk UNLV Pod.